Today is the first Sunday in Lent, and we will spend these next 40 days looking at how Jesus lived his life here on earth and how Jesus called us to live our lives here on earth. The series is called Jesus's Vision for Your One Wild and Precious Life, and this series is based on Dr. Mike Graves' new book. Today, we are going to read a scripture that is actually the first sermon that we hear Jesus preach in the gospel according to Luke. So listen for the major theme of Jesus's life. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. May God bless this reading to our understanding. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper, this grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who's eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she shifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down in the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing to all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. This is the poem by Mary Oliver called Summer Day. The famous line from Mary Oliver's poem is that last one. Tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. After Wednesday's Chiefs Parade ended with death and violence, this particular question became more stark for all of us. We only have one life to live, and this one life of ours is precious. What will we do with it? 
during Lent, we will be thinking together about what Jesus did with his one wild and precious life. And I'm so grateful to Dr. Graves, who wrote this book for us to study during this Lenten season. And I know that many of you are already enjoying it and sharing it with family and friends across the country. Today, as we begin this theme, we're looking at the first words we hear from Jesus in the gospel according to, Matt, to Luke when Jesus stands up publicly to preach. He's in the hometown synagogue, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. That's his opening line, good news to the poor. The Spirit of God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is what you might think of as Jesus's inaugural address. Picture him in Washington, D.C. on Inauguration Day up there on the dais. He's explaining why he's the Messiah, what it is he's going to do in his term, what God's Spirit has sent him to the world to do. And then Jesus goes on to elaborate a little bit more about this job description. Here's what good news for the poor looks like. It looks like release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, letting the oppressed go free. And unlike some inaugural speeches you and I have listened to, Jesus follows through on everything he says. We see him just days later, picking up the dirt, making a paste, putting it on a blind man's eyes, wiping off the paste, and now the man receives his sight. We see him going out to a picnic where thousands have gathered without enough to eat, and he feeds everyone with baskets left over. We see him reaching out to those in his day who were held in economic captivity, widows, women, children, the mentally ill, the disabled. I remember when I was in college and I was trying to figure out what I was going to be when I grew up, maybe a lawyer, maybe a journalist, maybe a minister. I wasn't quite sure. It depended on what day of the week you ask me. And during the midst of that confusing time, someone offered for me to be a part of an apprenticeship program which is where young college students would go and work full-time in a church to discern what the Spirit of God might be calling each of us to do. That first summer that I worked in the church, I had a good time, mostly working with the youth, and at the end of the summer, I was to drive all the kids in the van from our church to the, the summer camp that was maybe a three- or four-hour drive away. They were like third, fourth, fifth, maybe a few sixth graders in that group. And I loaded up the van, and then we got a call from a neighboring church, and they said, we don't have a church van, but we have a little girl that wants to go to camp. Could she ride along? Sure, we said, we'll, we'll, we'll take her. And so she met at the church, and then when camp was over, we loaded up the van, and I don't know if we had too many kids or what happened, but for some reason, we couldn't fit all the kids and all the luggage into the van. And so we tied the luggage up on top of the van with some ropes. And when we got back to Fort Worth, I took this one little girl from the other church directly to her home. And I was appalled at this teeny tiny shack she lived in. It, it looked like a house held together with duct tape. It was so heartbreaking. And I climbed up on the top of the van to get her luggage, and it had blown off 
somewhere on that three to four hour drive we had just taken. I returned this little girl to her house with no shoes, no clothes, no pajamas, and I was devastated. And I knew as I drove away that no matter how much she had learned about Jesus, no matter how many friends she had made, no matter what a good time she had had at camp, this was not what I was supposed to do. This was not good news to the poor. And I went back to my church and I reported what had happened to my boss. And the next day I went back to college and that has haunted me ever since. Someone has said that the church should stop asking, how are we doing as a church? And we should start asking, what are we doing for God? Are we good news to the poor? What will we do with our one wild and precious life? You and I live some 2,000 years after Jesus announced what his spiritual job description would be. And it's not really a job description he writes. Jesus says, it comes from the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He says, this is why God sent me to the earth. The Spirit of God has anointed me for this purpose, to be this good news for the poor. In his book, Dr. Graves cites another recent book called Poverty by America, written by Matthew Desmond. The statistics about poverty in our own nation are staggering. We live in the richest country in the world, and yet we have poverty rates higher than any other advanced democracy. If you added up all the people in our country who are poor, it would be more than all the people of Australia or more than all the people of Venezuela. Many people who live below the poverty line end up accessing these check cashing outlets and payday loan places instead of traditional banks. And consequently, $1.6 billion was spent in 2020 by poor people accessing their own money. But take it away from dollar figures. The week before the Super Bowl, I spent with the nuns up in Atchison, Atchison Kansas at Mount St. Scholastica. And one day, while having lunch with a few of the nuns, we began talking about the Super Bowl, and one of the nuns leaned over to me, and she said, you do know that the week before the Super Bowl is the week when human trafficking spikes. The poor still need to be set free. The captives still need to be released. The blind still need to see. What are we as Christians going to do about it? What is our spiritual job description? My sister-in-law and brother-in-law, Tim and Donna, just recently retired. They had both lived in Alpena, Michigan their entire lives. He was a, a middle school science teacher and volunteered at their church as the youth director. And she was an accountant for a large manufacturing firm, and she volunteered in the music department at their church. But when they looked towards retirement, they began asking each other this one question, what's our calling now? What are the ways in which God might use our lives in this next chapter? And I was so struck 
as I heard them talk about this, because most of the time we talk about retirement as the me chapter, time to travel, time to relax, time to take up a new hobby, but not for Tim and Donna. Oh yeah, they travel and they do have hobbies, but the question they kept pondering is, what will we do with this one wild and precious life? And how does Jesus change the conversation, shape the conversation? of what we will do next. And so they ended up selling the home that they had built in Alpena, Michigan, moving four hours south so that they could be active, hands-on grandparents, living just minutes from their five grandchildren instead of hours from those five grandkids. And then they joined a new church. And they chose a church in downtown Grand Rapids that has an active presence with folks living on the streets of Grand Rapids. And there, each week, they can tutor and mentor and serve food or just simply sit down and listen to the stories of the poor. What is your spiritual job description? I mean, I know you've got one. You've got a job description at work, and you probably have one in your household, too. Maybe you have mom duties or dad duties, or maybe you're taking care of an aging parent or maybe you're the designated spouse that takes out the trash or the one who's in charge of meal planning and meal preparation. But what difference does it make to the world whether or not you are a Christian? Will a child be safe from gun violence because of your spiritual job description? Will a homeless person find dignity because of your job description? Will a refugee find amnesty because of your job description? Will a former convict find a job because of your spiritual job description? In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' first words are, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's what he first says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then Luke writes the sequel, the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we hear almost the same phrase, the Spirit of God is upon you. The Spirit of God, says Luke, that was alive in Jesus, now takes up residence in the people, in the church. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and empower you. Is that a story only of the past? Or is that a story of the church today. Does the Spirit of God shape my job description, your job description, our job description? Jonathan Sachs, in one of his recent books, tells the story of a man named Aaron who lived in Boston. Aaron owned a textiles factory, a mill in Massachusetts, and one time, a tragic, horrific fire burned the textile mill to the ground. It was the worst such fire in a hundred years in Massachusetts. And Aaron was now 70 years old, and most of the textile mills in that area of the country were closing, and everyone assumed that Aaron would take the insurance money from the fire and close down the mill and retire because most textile manufacturers were now taking advantage of the cheap labor in Asia, in Mexico, in India. But Aaron, he shocked everyone when he announced they would rebuild the factory. And all the employees, he said, would be paid in full 
for the next 60 days and their health insurance had already been paid. People were shocked. What is going on here? Why did you do this? They asked Aaron. And Aaron quoted a scripture, a text that Jesus would have known well. You are not permitted to oppress the working man. Clearly, Aaron's spiritual job description overlapped with Jesus's spiritual job description. Both of them were good news for the poor, and it cost Aaron something. It was not a simple act of charity, a check, or one deed, a one-off. It was central to his character and to his purpose. A few weeks ago, my granddaughter, Mira, who's five, was in the car with her mother on the way to the doctor down near St. Luke's. As they drove through the plaza, they passed a homeless man with a sign on the corner. Normally, when this happens, if they're stopped at the light, they roll down the window and they hand the person a goodie bag that they keep in the car with a little granola bar and some bottled water, maybe some encouragement. Not helping this man. Mom, we have to help. We ha and she said, well, we'll get some goodie bags. We'll put them in the car. Maybe we'll come back another time. No, Mom, we have to help. You always have money in your purse. Don't you have money in your purse? Maybe you've got some money. Well, by this time, they were down the road a bit, and so Mom promised, yes, she did have $5, and on the way after the doctor, they would stop back by and give him the money. But Mira had also been promised a treat since she was not feeling well. And so after the doctor, they went to Starbucks, they each got a treat, and Mira got a bag of popcorn, her favorite treat. But she didn't open it. She sat and held it, and she said, I've been thinking about that man on the corner I'm afraid he could be hungry. Mom, I'm going to give him your $5, easy enough, and I'm going to give him this popcorn in case he's hungry. You see, the children know what their spiritual job description is. We are the ones who forget. <laughs>